Welcome, I'm John Lynch and I'm the host of The Discarded Compass, the podcast for the seasoned seeker. If this resonates, please subscribe to us for future episodes. So without further ado, sit back, relax and join me and my guest as we deep dive into the mystery of spiritual enlightenment. Welcome everybody to another episode of The Discarded Compass and uh, I'm sure you know who I am by now. I'm John Lynch and I'm your host. And uh, please subscribe before we go any further. There's a lot of you not subscribing so if you want to be part of our club, part of our gang, please subscribe. And look, without further ado, we have a wonderful guest tonight, Louise Kay. Hi Louise, how are you? Hi, hi. I'm great. Thank you. Lovely to be here with you. Yeah, it's really nice and, and, and thanks for coming on the show. I'm looking forward to our chat. Um, a lot of interesting things to talk about. Um, and even prior to the episode being uh, going ahead, you were talking about that you're a bit of a nomad. I, you must have an interesting story. How did this all start for you, this spiritual search and being a nomad? Um, yeah, actually, it did kind of happen simultaneously. Um I was interested in meditation and spirituality um, for some years. But it reached a point, a kind of a a climactic point where I felt a a strong call to go to India. And I couldn't ignore it. It was so strong. And that's when I quit my job and I left my apartment and... I got a one-way ticket to India. and So I didn't actually plan or make a conscious decision. I'm going to start a nomadic lifestyle now. I just never went back to my job. And I just continued. That's quite dramatic. <laughs> Did you say dramatic or traumatic? Maybe, maybe both. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was I was having so much fun, and I was living off very little money at the time. Um, but I never really felt afraid or or. I didn't think, oh, this is terrible. I need to, I need to get a house. I need to start a pension. And I wasn't having these kind of thoughts. I was just so focused on kind of this surge that was all consuming. And that was just the only important thing in my life. And following what felt true moment to moment. What? was the catalyst that drove you to India or were you on a spiritual search or did you just a thought happened you weren't on a spiritual search and a thought just came a strong thought go to India or no for quite some years I've been very interested in these spiritual teachings um and before I left for India I actually had started to meet quite a few people who told me that they'd been to India and I started to, just a curiosity and an interest started to arise. And after I had the idea, maybe I should go, I heard about Amma, the hugging saint. Do you know Amma? I've heard of Amma, yeah. Yes, well, I was teaching English in Amsterdam 
at the time. I was living there and I heard that she was coming close by. Um, and it looked interesting. I didn't know much about her, but I felt enough interest that I decided to go. And it's it's quite an interesting experience if you go to Amaji. She, she sits there for hours and hours hugging people, and there's lines of people waiting to get a hug from her. You have to get a ticket, and she starts early in the morning and goes to like 4 a.m., just nonstop. So I had a ticket, and I think I had to wait till like 2 a.m. to go and have my hug. and. When I finally got there, there was a very strong energy field around there. And I had a very powerful experience when, when she hugged me, some, like a kind of a, an opening of some kind. And it, it felt so strong. I had to go and lie down. So I, I went in the back room and just laid down on a, a yoga mat. And I closed my eyes and I started to see this purple light here opening up. And it sounds a little bit crazy, but she, I heard her speak to me in her voice in my head. And I never experienced that before. And I never have again. And the, these words said, go to India, what you seek, you shall find there. I've never forgotten it. It was so clear. And the moment that happened, it was, it, I had an indescribable clarity. Like I'd already been thinking about it and I decided I'm going. That was it. I quit my job. I, I said to the landlord, I'm leaving the apartment. I got rid of all my stuff. I booked a flight and I went. So you didn't just go to India. You, you left your life behind at the same time. Yes. Yeah, I mean, usually people have an experience that might go to India. And there is always a strong pull to go to India. I've never been, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to go and I will someday. But just why leave your job and your apartment? That's very, that's very um, dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the interest was so strong that it... It, everything else was diminished in comparison. It, I was so single-pointedly focused that I, I, I want to know God. I want to know who I am. Almost to an, an obsessive point. This, mm. this is the only thing I'm interested in life. I don't care about anything else, no matter what. And I will do anything to know that. That, that level of interest in it. Um, so the intuition that came, that was so strong, I couldn't ignore it. It felt like an inner guidance. So you were in the tiger's mouth, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> you, you went to India. Um, what happened in India? I mean, how long ago was this? How long ago? A couple of years? No, this was this was about eight years ago. Eight years, okay. Um and had you been abroad before or 
Yeah, I'd been abroad quite a bit, but it was the first time that I've been to India. Okay, and so what happened in India? What what was your experience? Um, I felt a... Uh, what part did you go to, by the way? Well, I went to a place called Rishikesh, which okay. is on the, the Ganges River, the foothills of the Himalaya. And it's, it's a place that's um, got a long history with these spiritual traditions. And it's known for the place where the... The yogis would go there in caves and meditate. And so there's a lot of yoga and meditation and teachers there. And so I went there and what was the question? Sorry. Um, what happened really? I mean, what happened? Rishikesh, that's, yes. that's interesting. There's two of Amalai and Arunachala as well, the hotspots. Um, yes, I did go there another time. I was in India, but this first time I went to India, and I felt a, a very strong energy there because the, the whole culture is born out of these teachings. The, the, it's in their religion, it's in their culture, and it's all around you. You feel it, you see it everywhere, and it's quite powerful. And it's such a radical experience just being in India. Um, where it 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 pushes you, it pushes you to your limit in every sense of that, because it's so overwhelming. It's overwhelming to the senses, to the mind, to to the body. Um, so before I went, someone someone said to me, "You you you can tell people what India's like, but they'll never know." for real until they've been there and I understood that once I've been because it's really like being on another planet but while I was there I was uh, connecting with these energies connecting with the energy of the Ganges um, and going to sit with these teachers that are there and not just listening but really applying the teachings and I was following the pointings of one particular teacher, which was a an invitation to self-inquiry, to, to look who you are right now beyond any story and to look what is looking, what is it that's aware. And as I followed those pointings, um, there was a direct recognition of that as the the truth as reality and the conceptual self kind of fell away. It was seen through. Um, and I experienced a period of about two weeks where reality seemed very ephemeral, very, it was dreamlike. And, and after that, a process of integration began, which continues to this day, which is a kind of a cleansing of a system on the level of form, the an unraveling of unconscious and limiting beliefs and conditionings and traumas held in the body and processed emotions. It, it unwinds, it continues to unwind and release. All the while that recognition remains that who I am is not the conceptual self. 
there is there is a deeper essence which is pure awareness there is a lot in what you said and to filter through it and sort of unpack it would be interesting um first off when you had that awakening <clears throat> spiritual awakening really and prior to that you had various spiritual experiences um when that awakening happened was it seen that what you were was always there anyway and was there some sort of an idea about ignorance being at play prior to that awakening um, it was definitely seen that it had always been there just it never been recognized and would you think um, we are sort of you mentioned it a bit we're we're conditioned through just being ignorant because i presume that awareness doesn't care as such that's like a brutal way of saying it but that awareness just allows everything to be doesn't it yes yes yeah so when we're conditioned we take on these things awareness is like a mirror or not these things are applied and we take it to be what's applied to the mirror but we're actually the mirror you know that sort of analogy um was it seen that really nothing was everything was inevitable or was there a timelessness involved or was there like a seeing of you know louise really was given these patterns of beliefs and it wasn't her fault as such there was no thoughts there was no kind of conceptual understanding of anything just pure beingness just absolute stillness and the sense of everything being connected and everything being one and a deep sense of peace like like a, a veil was pulled away from my eyes and I could see with clarity for the first time and the understandings that you speak about came later but in that moment there was a sense of nothingness yet everything <laughs> I often hear that spoke about nothing and everything it's like how can I be nothing and everything? And the next yeah. thing we start chasing this idea, this conceptual idea of what enlightenment is, you know. Um, is there any such thing as enlightenment, would you say, anyway? I mean, or is it... Well, it, it depends on the definition of enlightenment. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it would be unique to every individual, you know, that someone can be enlightened, but there's, it's not a possibility, mm -hmm. is it? Do you think? Yeah, well, well, it depends on what what the definition is because people have many different definitions of what it means to be enlightened. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of the state that you're talking about, nothing and everything, yeah. how does someone approach um, believing they're an individual? How can they approach this dilemma that they have to lose themselves to find themselves? Um. I would invite people not to see it as a dilemma because that has a subtle implication that it's difficult or problematic. 
and more approach it with a sense of curiosity and a, and a gentle interest or excitement like huh, who am I who am I and to begin to inquire not on a mental level but through looking the one's own experience in this moment um, questions like what is here when there's no thoughts here or who am I without believing any ideas about myself or I'm already here. What is it that's aware that I am right now? What is it that's aware that I, I'm aware right now? This kind of questions to look with an open curiosity as though one knows nothing and to gently shift the, the focus of attention, not to focus on objects, that are perceived like thoughts or emotions or sounds or smells. Anything that's perceived as an object comes and goes and changes. But to have a look, what is the subject that perceives those changing objects? that subject that never comes or goes, that never changes. Who or what is that to really look, not to think about it, but to look at one's own experience. And with this looking, one can discover through direct experience that in this moment right now, there's an intelligence here that's, invisible, it's formless, that already is, it's not something you need to become, you're already here, and you're already aware, and to allow the attention to rest as that, it's more of a stopping than a doing anything, if the attention becomes very still, and there's no effort and the system kind of drops into it, or sometimes there's a, there's a sense of a, a subtle underlying presence. Now, if one can sense that, then what's required is to attune the attention to it, to focus on it. And what will happen in the beginning is the attention will keep switching back to focus on thought patterns and, and sounds and, and emotions and sensations in the body because we've been practicing focusing our attention in that way for our whole lives. So it's a bit like a bad habit that needs to be broken. And that's why many people, when they, they first open up to this underlying stillness, Awareness, consciousness, many different words for it. 
they they experience a kind of a, a backwards and a forwards and they say, I lost it, I got it, I lost it. And and then sometimes the mind comes in and starts telling the story about how I did it wrong, I need to get it back. And that then pulls them back into identifying with the conceptual self that's seeking something. So it's okay that in the beginning there's this backwards and forwards. It's it's part of the adjustment process or the learning process of the system. And eventually the system finds its resting place in the natural state, which is to rest as awareness, continuously and consistently. That's quite a very interesting and succinct sort of pointing. And the switching, the mind can come in and claim it, can't it? That's what usually does. Or not claim it. (laughs) Um, The mind is pretty useless when it comes to inquiry, is it? Um, Not totally useless. um, Because when one starts to become interested in these teachings, the mind, it it kind of splits itself into two parts and there's one part of the mind that resists it and it fights against it. And it's important to become aware of how the mind resists and what that looks like so that when it happens... We were able to see, oh, it's the mind, it's resisting, and I know what to do with this. I know how to relate to this so that I'm not identifying with the resistance. And there's another part that starts to mature through the inquiry, and that part that starts to mature starts to get on board with the teachings, and it can then be used as a tool to remember the teachings. So what that looks like, for example, is you're at work having a conversation and then somebody says something that triggers the system. There's a recognition that this is uncomfortable, I'm suffering right now. And then a thought might appear, the system's triggered. Then there's more consciousness, huh? And because the mind has been digesting the teachings, another thought might appear, who am I? I'm awareness, that remembering. So the mind can be used as a tool to help us remember as it digests the teachings. At some point, it's not necessary anymore because awareness becomes a natural, consistent state. And even if there's a forgetting, it's not a problem. Just there's an instant remembering. But while the remembering is needed, the mind can be used as a tool as it begins to mature. So how do we know that it's the mind that's aware or awareness that's aware? How how would you know the difference?
Awareness is always aware. The mind, if we look at it, and, and we actually inquire what is the mind, then it is little more than thoughts. There is no actual mind that we can find. There's actually just thoughts appearing in awareness. And there's a conceptual identity built up, which is also a bunch of thoughts and ideas. And when that is believed to be who I am, it affects what everything in one's life. It, it, affect, it affects our behavior, the way that we relate with other people, the way that we relate to life, the things we say. Once we become consciously aware of that mechanism, of that conceptual self, and there's the capacity to see that that's not me, I'm that which is aware of it, then our actions become aligned with the higher truth, the, the truth of awareness, which is not based on conditionings or beliefs, but it's the divine intelligence which underlines, underlies the whole of existence. And so its nature is peaceful and it's gentle and it's loving. So we become more discerning as we mature spiritually and we're able to tell the difference between when there's a recognition and a resting as awareness and actions and words and movement is arising out of that and when there's identification with a conceptual self. The most easy way to see is that if there's identification with the conceptual self, sooner or later there's going to be suffering because it's painful to, to live as that. So now we're getting into conditioning and suffering and trauma, which was mentioned. Um, that's heavy stuff, Um and I don't think there's anybody that haven't, hasn't suffered and anybody that's watching this must have suffered, you know. Um, what, what would you say to give them some sort of pointers towards that suffering or how to relieve that suffering? Or is it you have to take it out by the root and not trim the branches or you have to really yes. inquire? First to, well, it's both actually. First to, you, you pull it out by the root by recognizing your true nature. Once there is a, a clear seeing that I am not the thoughts that appear, they're not personal to me. I am not any ideas about me, or I'm not those concepts, and nor am I the body, and nor am I any emotions or energies, then there's a shift in identity that takes place, but I am awareness. My nature is whole, it's complete, it's perfect. I don't need fixing, I don't need healing, I don't need anything to enhance me. I'm totally and completely fulfilled as I am right now, in this moment and in every moment. That's like pulling the roots out. 
from that recognition, there's also the seeing. Often that's the recognition that comes first. Mm. And then there is a seeing that nothing is separate from me, awareness. Everything is appearing in me, awareness, and there's no distance between me or anything else. So this form is also me. Because if I say that's not me and this is me, mm-hmm. then I've actually created two. But mm-hmm. the recognition from the perspective of awareness is there's only one. Everything is this one. The difference is awareness, consciousness is eternal. It's unmoving and it's unchanging. It's it's the absolute, it's the absolute truth. The expression of form is temporary. So it's a temporary, limited expression of me awareness. And my favorite analogy, I think, to bring clarity to that understanding is the analogy of the ocean and the waves, which many people have probably heard already. But if you look at the ocean, it's all made of water, and the water creates movements as waves, which are temporary expressions, and they return back to that body of water. And what is the wave made of? It's made of water, the same as the whole ocean. And it's it's similar like this. This this character Louise is like a wave that's temporary, made of consciousness. And this temporary expression holds in it imprints that our conditionings and traumas, which started from the moment of birth, maybe even before that, when when we're in the womb, mm. when we're feeling what our mother's feeling, these imprints can even begin then. And different people have different levels of trauma in the system. And that, what happens when we open up to our true nature and recognize ourselves as awareness is the whole system opens up and that intelligence begins to infiltrate through every layer of the system. It infiltrates the mind, it infiltrates the emotional body, the energy body, and the physical body. But those things are more dense, so they take more time to catch up with the understanding of I am awareness and it's experienced a bit like an unraveling process where everything that's tight and contracted, constricted begins to slowly, slowly open up and open up. This happens in time and space throughout life. So there's an unfolding or releasing or an integration of everything that's been backed up in the system that's not in alignment with the higher truth and everything that's disharmonious. So all the emotions that we never allowed ourselves to feel, 
that got locked inside. What happened in those moments, maybe we were at high school, somebody said something mean and we felt like we wanted to cry but didn't feel safe because we knew that it's not safe to be vulnerable in that environment. We maybe get attacked. So the system's intelligence protects us and doesn't allow the expression of that emotion. The way it protects us is to contract. As it contracts, it happens unconsciously. As it it contracts, the energy of the emotion becomes locked in the system and it becomes frozen in there. And it can stay frozen for a lifetime. But for those who begin to open up spiritually, emotionally, that emotional body opens up. And the purging happens, so all the unprocessed emotions come up to be felt, released and integrated. And as that process happens, a maturing happens on the human level. That's what you meant by the mind maturing, that aspect of the mind maturing, integrating. Yes. Yes, that's also a part of it. There's, there are a few different aspects to the mind maturing. We also become consciously aware of beliefs which you could say form the mind or part of the mind. And many times these beliefs are unconscious, beliefs that we were conditioned with by our parents or by our society. And because there's a recognition of the self as awareness beyond thought, there's a capacity to observe thoughts. As thoughts are observed, then it's possible to inquire, wait a minute, is this thought true? This thought I've been believing and thinking my whole life, it's not true. When it's not true, we don't, act it out in life anymore. So the whole experience and perspective of reality shifts. It's like if you're looking through a lens, like on a camera, and you put a filter in front of it that turns everything you look at red. That's what it's like to look through the veil of the conceptual self, to believe I'm separate from everyone and everything and to believe all kinds of crazy stuff like um, people are out to get me, the world is not safe, money is evil. Um, All these kind of beliefs come up. You take that away, reality now appears differently. Now it's seen through the eyes of clarity, the eyes of truth, that everything is sacred, everything is divine, everything is me, nothing separate from me. That's that's a wonderful insight, a wonderful explanation of of seeing through the the suffering, the conceptual suffering uh, system, I call it. Um, <clears throat> I would too think as well that um, the conditioning, conditioning, were kind of conned into being <laughs> something. You know, I like to split words up. 
it's a con job and no one's to blame are they? Like, you know? I like that I never heard that one yeah it's like um, it's like another one of my favourite mine is gratitude you know it's like gratitude it's not like you have to humble yourself on your knees and be grateful to whatever it's kind of like a great attitude a great attitude mm. can be like I'm delighted I got a car to drive that's gratitude I think you know yes but anyway enough for me and my sort of things um but um it's um i i think there's a lot of suffering in the world Louise. um you know and it's it's tough to see people suffering and it's even tougher to see them suffering when you know there's no need for them to suffer as such and there's a powerlessness involved in that um Like some people are unreachable, aren't they? Um, you mentioned family conditionings and things like that. Some people don't have supports. And um, what would you advise? To, what what would you suggest to people that could identify with that suffering? Yes, it's true. There's immense suffering on our planet, in our society. You can't escape it. It's actually, there's actually so much suffering that we've become numb to it because... We see it on the news every single day, another war and more starving people, mm. more disease, abuse, everything. And it's heartbreaking. Now, the problem is if we start to feel bad because of all the suffering in the world, then because we're feeling bad, we start to suffer and then we contribute to the amount of suffering in the world. So it's not helpful to suffer because others are suffering. Um, the way out of that is to go in. What that means is to feel the sensitivity and the tenderness of your heart and the beauty that it, it, there's a beauty there to feel pain because I see another human being suffering. I can only feel that pain, actually, because there's love there on some level. I recognize that human being is divine, is so perfect, is so beautiful that it's painful for me to see them suffer and to allow oneself to consciously feel those sensations in the heart, the tenderness, the vulnerability, to open to it very softly and very gently. Let the heart break open to that suffering. And in that opening, then what happens is there's a, it's like a gateway or a portal to a deeper unconditional love mm. From there, there is knowing that everything's okay because who these other people are is actually me. They're awareness. So when I can recognize them as awareness, I know that ultimately they're okay because awareness, consciousness, can't be hurt and can't be harmed. It's love. And in that heartbreaking, there's a bliss, isn't there? Um, 
it's like a bittersweetness because there's yeah. still the pain there of the suffering. There's still, but with the pain, there's a sweetness of the love mm. and there's no resistance to it. It only becomes suffering if there's a belief that it shouldn't be like this. Yeah. It should be different. But if you don't believe that story and you you recognize that there's a higher power here, which we could call God or the universe or love, whatever label you want to give it. And that is so intelligent that it doesn't make mistakes. There's a, there, there's a seeing that everything is perfectly imperfect. It's actually all just as it is. And it's often out of the suffering that beauty is born. It's often when there's immense suffering that we learn the greatest lessons, that we evolve. So many times it's needed for our evolution or for us to open to a higher consciousness. So <clears throat> that that's that's a lot. Um that's quite something to it's the resistance, isn't it, that causes the problem. Resistance and close mindedness, rigid rigid thinking, rigid beliefs, um radical beliefs, uh radical con concepts. Aren't they? They seem to be the most dangerous, don't they? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The believing in some, identifying with the belief that this is the right way and I know and the others are wrong mm. is so dangerous that it can lead us to kill other people yeah. or destroy our own planet. It's, it's really a form of insanity. Yeah, I I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. It's um Yeah, even thinking of it is 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 yeah, it's just mind-boggling. Um but even the thought <clears throat> that those people that are identified in that way shouldn't be like that. Mhm. Mm That's resistance again. Can be a form of violence. It's like if you imagine a tree and it's got the trunk and the leaves and all the branches. And if if the tree could talk like we do and it said that branch is bad, it's wrong, it shouldn't be like that. I want I want to change it. The, the tree sees the branch as something separate from itself. But if the tree can see that every branch is is it even the wonky branches and the ones that maybe have got some disease on them the, the tree wouldn't be violent against itself or another way to say it would be like if if i see my arm has some defect i don't want to cut off my arm so even when we can see defects in in other people or even groups of people, 
in a way, it's innocent because it's not their fault. It's like they've got a mind virus, like we get sick in the body and they're not able to see differently. They're not inherently even evil. They're just confused. And from their perspective, they're actually doing the best thing that they think is the best. They really truly believe it's the best and they want the best for everyone. But there's the system hasn't matured to the point where there's a capacity to see with more openness. It's a bit like when there's a fruit tree and there's many apples on the tree. They ripen at different speeds and some of the apples are ripe and they fall off. And some of them take longer to ripen, they stay on the tree. And human evolution and spiritual maturing is the same. You can't force the apple to ripen faster. It ripens in its own time. And you can't force a human to awaken faster. They will awaken in their own time, like apples on the tree. So you can say, oh, that apple's not ripe. That one's ready to drop. It's just like that. Not one is better than the other. They're yeah. all apples from the same tree. They're all going through the same process. I like the one like, we're all bananas, but some are riper than others. Yes. <laughs> some are green, some are yellow. But eventually some are very we get... green. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it leads me to the question of freedom. What, what is freedom? That's like out there, what, what is freedom? It's like, yes. do we really want to be free? Because that person that's locked up in that conceptual framework and it's like, I know I'm right, you know, and he is and she is and they are whatever. And, you know, and there's wars, you know. Um, I wonder, do people really want to be free if they knew what it was or do they know what it is? That part of the mind that you describe is what I was talking about earlier when I said there's a part of a mind that expresses resistance to this truth. That part absolutely does not want to be free because it fears that freedom because it recognizes that that freedom means it's annihilation. Wow, that's heavy, isn't it? That's re- that's death. We're talking about death. Well, yes. it is death, because death of the mind is, is, well, I won't, yeah, it's death, yeah. Yes, it's its own death, it, but it's the death of that which was never real anyway. Um, and just like, it's a bit like an entity, it will fight for its survival. Mm-hmm. So it fights to hold on to its beliefs, to hold on to the conceptual self. Um, and not everybody has an interest in being free from that even if there's a lot of suffering the the suffering is familiar and it's comfortable because it's familiar so there's a preference towards comfort and then giving up the suffering because what that means is to open up to the unknown if i give up all these stories and beliefs about who i am then i don't know anything that feels scary to the mind because there's the 
the identification with the conceptual self brings with it a fabricated sense of safety and security. Without that, there's no sense of safety or security. There's no sense of grasping at anything. It's just one huge unknown, not even knowing who I am. So that can trigger a lot of fear in people. But what, what keeps them going on this path of inquiry is a kind of a yearning that awakens in the heart. And I don't think there's anything you can do to ignite that yearning. It just seems to appear in some people. Randomly, when it appears, it appears. And it, it can become so intense, like a fire burning, that something inside, an intelligence awakens, that knows this is the path. Even if it's not clear or the mind doesn't fully understand something inside and intuition knows, mm -hmm. it's like it resonates deep in the cells. When these teachings are heard, there's a recognition of the truth in it, almost like something remembers from a long, long time ago. This is, this is truth, this resonates. And so there's a following of that. And many times there'll be glimpses through direct experience of this truth. Once there's been a glimpse, once it's been tasted, that freedom, then I don't think I've met anyone so far that says I want to go back. Yeah, they can't go back anyway, can they? I kind Not of think, really. <laughs> I kind of like that idea that when the Buddha became enlightened as such, I had this idea, it's just my own idea that it's all over because once somebody had a glimpse throughout apparent history we say the Buddha was the first person to ever have woken up or Jesus or Allah or whoever yeah but as soon as someone saw that as soon as consciousness saw itself as such um <laughs> like it was over would you kind of think that it's like the Matrix, like a glitch in the Matrix, that movie, Matri the Matrix. I like the first one. The first series is more like it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It it brings with it a, a profound shift in perception. Um, it's a bit like a flipping reality inside out. Mm. And... I don't think you can go back or you want to go back. And many times people experience these layers of trauma rising up or challenges, resistance of the mind, the mind attacking. But if you ask them, even in that moment where it's very intense and they're going through the dark night of the soul, do you want to go back? They, they always say no. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Louise, does it, it takes courage, doesn't it? Too. I mean, doesn't it really take courage 
or is the courage given or is it inherently there or is it grace? What propels us? Is it courage? Is it grace? What is it? Is it I think a, primarily it's grace. Grace. It's like grace touches us and it's grace that touches the heart and opens the heart to this longing, this longing for truth, this longing for God, this longing to know oneself truly, to, to truly know who am I beyond the conceptual self. To be touched by that grace is the, the greatest gift that we can receive from life and many, most people experience immense sense of gratitude that these teachings come into their life, that Grace touches their heart in this way. And then when the challenges do come, it's that grace that brings with it courage because there's a knowing deep inside that there's this bigger picture. I'm not all alone. I'm not this separate individual self that has to struggle. The whole universe is on my side. What strength and power that gives me. Now, I can overcome any obstacle. I can meet any emotion. Because God is with me. Universal love is with me. And it's not separate from me, it is me. It's like an indestructible power, like that stillness that you spoke about. It's it's always there. It's it's what lives us, isn't it? It's Yes. Like there's no getting it wrong. There's no falling out of it or falling into it. It's quite something. And that's what makes it so obviously there that it's so there that we we just miss it. It's missed by this conceptual falseness. <clears throat> and you mentioned the mind. It was interesting. I wanted to go back to that. You mentioned the mind and it was like full of fear and insecurities. And I was kind of thinking people believe they're the mind for sure. But there's lots of holes in that. But. If that was the case and the mind was real, why would it be afraid? It's like there's an intuitive knowing that it's not true. What produces the fear and insecurity? I mean, even someone that's conceptually safe is never safe. There's always a closing down, like a locking up the conceptual self, make sure all the doors are locked, you know. Yeah. It's um, yeah. it, it's a continuous minding, isn't it really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like the system's running on a kind of unconscious, automated, robotic mode. Just unconscious habits and patterns repeating themselves. And there's not even an awareness of it. Yeah, yeah. Is the, can it, that self, that whatever that is, that power... Can it be known, do you think? I mean, I, I, I'm only intuitive understanding of it, but. Yes, you can know yourself as it. You can know that this this is me. But can you know what it is? I mean, it can never be known, can it, you for can, sure? You, you can't mentally know it. Yeah. But you can experientially know it. And what's that like, Louise, to experience Lee know it? Uh, 
any description of it already is not it. So the closest that it's possible to describe it is through being that stillness and inviting other people to meet there in that stillness. It's more like a shift from meeting conceptually or on a mental level to a sensory feeling, an intuitive feeling of a stillness. And I speak slowly and pause between the words because it's in those pauses that it's easier to recognize the words in, invite us to conceptualize it or think about it. But when there's no words, there's just awareness here perceiving in quite the same way that a baby would experience reality before it's learned any language or before it's taken on any conceptual identity or even a name. So it can be helpful for people to imagine that right now you've just been born and everything you see, you see it for the first time, but you don't have any conceptual idea about what anything is. So you're only experiencing it. So there's no sense of an eye looking at a computer. There's only perceiving of colors, objects, without any mental narrative, without any labeling of anything. And the body is experienced purely as sensations, aliveness. There's not even an idea of me, my body, arm, head, because these words haven't been learned yet. The baby only knows the body. It's pure sensation. Sounds are perceived. There's no labeling, that's a car. It's just simply experienced. And that which is knowing, what which is the aware witness, is awareness itself. It's so simple, but so profound. Um, and like you said, I'd often 
uh, times in my life where I get caught up in life and I have a busy sort of life in some respects. But there's always, everything pales into comparison with the search and the self-inquiry, you know. It's like the truest thing of all, you know, um, if you could call it truth. Um, it's the greatest question of all, um, I think. Um, and I like the gentle approach that you said to make towards it. Maybe have self-compassion, you know, some teachers don't think of that like <clears throat> but I think compassion is is telling the truth of how it is, you know, I think. Um, and you actually remind me of Yuji Krishnamurti, like Yuji, the barking dog, but not the way you go on. Like Yuji, they would say, like you're a nomad and Yuji was a nomad. He was in my mind when you were talking to me, you know, like Yuji was like, they reckon he was not compassionate in any way in any sense whatsoever. But I think the guy was actually quite compassionate. Um, cause he, he spoke the truth, you know, um, of what it was. Um, and he didn't let people get caught up in their conceptual ideas about this, that, and the other. I don't know why I mentioned Yuji Krishnamurti, but he's so far away from, from your way of your expression. But, um, the nomad thing, um, I mean, you, you, you walk the talk, you're, you're a nomad, you know, home. Um, as such and no career and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of blessed that this is kind of my career now <laughs> you call it that, that I'm just totally in love with this and I'm able to share this with other people that are in love with it and I feel like I have the best job in the world wow it's certainly been interesting talking about this um, and uh, you've got a really gentle way of, a powerful way too, of, of expressing, teaching this. Um, before we close, I suppose, Louise, is there anything you want to add to, to the conversation? Mm. I'd like to invite or remind people to listen to their heart, to follow the whispers of their heart, because we live in a society that's very mind dominated and there's a lot of emphasis play placed on thinking and figuring things out and there's nothing wrong with that that has its place too but many times the, the intelligence of the heart is overlooked and true wisdom doesn't come from the mind knowledge comes from the mind true wisdom comes from the heart and you can everyone access that wisdom 
by becoming quiet and still inside and discovering that which lies beyond the knowledge of the mind, the intelligence of the mind, by looking what what is it that underlies thoughts, what is here before a thought appears. Also during a thought that witnesses the thought and after the thought is gone. What what is there is a stillness, a quiet, a presence. When you open up to that and feel it in your heart, almost like you're intentionally communing with the intelligence of the universe and inviting it into your system, then everything that you need to know will become available to you. Any challenge you have in life, any guidance you need, you can access it yourself in there. And if you don't have the answer there, then it's not the right moment for you to know it if you continue to stay present moment to moment and open to the stillness in the moment where you need to know what action to take in life. It will be clear to you. And then don't be afraid, take action on that intelligence of your heart because it will guide you and life will support you. Even if it brings challenges, those challenges will be there to, to support you to see something that's unconscious in your system or to support you to grow in some way. So whenever you see a challenge, ask yourself, if, if this were life showing me something to support me, what would it want me to see? What, what can I learn from this? And if you ask that, you'll always have an opportunity for growth. That is a wonderful end to our conversation. Unfortunately, we have to finish. <clears throat> Louise, it's been really, really nice uh, having this conversation, powerful conversation. Um, we touched on a lot of things that I, I feel myself personally are important to people to hear, you know. Um, and I like the fact that you brought up stuff that um, that I like to hear talked about, you know, um, which was a bonus for me to, to hear as well, you know. Um, and before we, we let you go, you have a website, louisek.net. Yeah. That's right. Yes. I'd put a link below. And do you, do you have any books or, um, you have a meetings coming up maybe? Um, every Sunday I offer an open zoom meeting and it's a two hour meeting it starts with a guided meditation. And then there's an opportunity for Q&A. So if anyone has anything they want to explore or they're on this path and they have challenges or something else they don't understand, they can come to the Zoom meeting and we can explore it together and they can ask questions. Everyone's welcome. It's by donation. So they can find that on my website. That's louisek.net slash Zoom. And I'm actually offering... Um, a weekend retreat in Amsterdam this coming Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's December 2nd to 4th. And there's still some places available. So 
if anyone watches this, if it goes out before then, I don't know, we'll see. And they'd like to join, they can find more information about that on my website. So there you go, folks. Get yourselves to Amsterdam and join Louise in her her, her talks. Um, so, Louise, look, it, it's been wonderful talking to you again, as I said. And um, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about things about spiritual enlightenment and, and the rest of it. And it's been quite a story, and thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed Thank you for joining us on our podcast and we very much hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe for more on your chosen platform. And also, if you'd like to keep in contact, please hit us up on social media. So folks, until next time, please take care and we hope you join us soon.